0: This is MIT Technology Review.
1: As soon as I picked up the rental car I was followed. I could tell from,
2: you know, pulling over to to rest stops and things like that. Michael Standard is a freelance journalist who has been living in and reporting on China for 15 years. He's one of a shrinking number of independent news reporters still working in China.
1: Depending on what area we were in, some kind of local security people would tail us just to see what we were doing, and then we
2: could tell they were speaking with people that we would spoken to. Michael has been investigating China's trade in wild animals, which led him to a rural area called Enshir, about a six-hour drive from Wuhan. It's, it's one of the most beautiful areas in, in China
1: I've been, and you know driving those mountain roads is pretty intense particularly if you're in a kind of a rural area. They just don't want anything happening on their watch that they may get in trouble with from people higher up. I think that's one of the, the reasons why they want to check you out. I was actually trying to engage with them at one point.
2: You were trying to talk to the people tailing you?
1: Yeah, I was trying to get them to, uh,
2: to come over and talk to me about what they were doing. They were calling ahead so that people didn't answer Michael's questions. Questions about unusual animals bred on farms in this remote area and then sold and shipped to cities like Wuhan. It's such an
1: invisible industry since it's it is in in these areas where it's difficult to go to and, and it's not discussed very much. Part of kind of the whole invisible China, you know, people living in in cities, if they don't buy these things or, or consume these things, they don't know what's going on.
2: an invisible industry promoted as a way to ease poverty and which some scientists say could be to blame for starting the COVID-19 pandemic. It's the theory that a virus made the jump from wildlife to humans, what's called a zoonosis. But there are problems with this idea too. The animals are all gone. The trail is cold and no one is talking. I'm Antonio Regalato. And in this episode of Curious Coincidence, the search for COVID-19's origins takes us on the trail of civets and raccoon dogs to a corner of a wet market in China, an empty cage, and possibly to the exact place the pandemic began. Whoever was following Michael's standard, they wanted to keep tabs on what he was learning in Enshea, a corner of Hubei province where about a half a million wild animals lived on farms before the pandemic sometimes near bat caves, the kind that could harbor coronaviruses.
1: This area is full of karst cave systems that are are known to be uh, home to the the rhinolophus, uh, horseshoe bat species that carry SARS-like viruses. So yeah, I was just investigating all those different things and seeing what we could find out on the ground uh, from people. I mean, it's very difficult
2: to go to these farms. ENSHA is remote, sparsely populated and poor. Its big attraction? an impressive cliff known as China's Grand Canyon. It's a pretty
1: mountainous, rural part of Hubei. It was the least developed uh, part of Hubei for many years. They've pumped a lot of funding into that that area
2: for poverty alleviation. China's government had promoted wildlife farming as a way to raise living standards. Successful farmers appeared on China Central TV. There were loans and training programs.
1: It's a fast industry to, to get into and makes a lot of profit very quickly. So a lot of these local areas wanted to, to get their poverty alleviation goals set by the end of 2020 and encouraging these kind of farms was, was part of
2: that. The farms help meet demand for cuisine known as wild taste. One favorite food, civets, are small spotted carnivores. One farm may have
1: licenses for civet, porcupines, raccoon dogs, you know, you name it.
2: What was the setting like? I mean, does it, does it look like an industrial farm or is it very informal? I barely know what a civet looks like, much less a civet colony. Very informal, uh, just
1: like kind of a, a two-floor, small barn system. Uh, there was a couple of these little barns. Those people were usually a bit cagey about what was going on and said, oh, we stopped before the outbreak and didn't really want to say too much more about what they were raising. Tell me about a farm that you actually got to and found or what was left of it there was a self-proclaimed largest civet farm didn't really see anyone tried to hike up to the house got around there and saw this old guy walking around we had tried to call the the owner the owner refused to to meet and then the person that was there was his uncle and his uncle had basically helped him run the farm before the outbreak they had around a thousand civets had been doing it for at least six years It was pretty broken down uh, by that time, and this was, what, a year and a half after they stopped raising the civets. And in that case, they said they had released them all into the wild.
2: In early 2020, China's central government shut down thousands of businesses, farms, and websites. The animals disappeared, but so did potential clues about COVID-19's origins. That's why Michael has been trying to reconstruct what the industry looked like before the outbreak.
1: So pretty early on, I think it was early February 2020, there was an order to basically quarantine all wildlife farms. And then there was a, a final uh, ban on the consumption of meat from terrestrial wildlife. And at that time, that, that was when these orders for culling uh, came into place. So, you know, some provinces had more culling, some had more release. So one of the options was to release animals. But, yeah, there's not really much information on what kind of testing was done before those animals were culled or released. I mean, there could have been the case where a farm with, with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, they, they culled all the animals and, you know, they, they won't have any traces left.
2: No traces left. What's more, Chinese researchers never found sars coronavirus 2 in any animal. But what's for sure is that while the animals had been making their way to Wuhan, To the huge Huanan market, where they were kept on display in cages and butchered. Scientists had warned for years that wet markets could spark an outbreak. They'd been linked to the original SARS epidemic, which emerged from China in 2003. These animals were absolutely like a soup of viruses. They really were. And they were shedding viruses too. Edward Holmes is a virologist at the University of Sydney in Australia. He's been to the Huanan market, and he talked to the BBC's Science and Action program about the condition animals are kept in. I've got raccoon dogs with, with a cough. I've got this Asian badger that's kind of, you can see the kind of material dripping from his nose. And you can just imagine people handling these things, okay, exposed to these things on a daily basis, and these animals are shedding lots of virus. So to me, this is a very dangerous, worrying kind of, place where humans and animal and wildlife interact. And it's that interaction, human and wildlife, that's what drives pandemics. Holmes was part of a large team of international scientists who, just this February, put out two reports that they claim all but prove the COVID-19 virus jumped to people in the Huanan market. And not once, but twice. The lab leak theory is bunk, they say. Follow the evidence. That's what they did. Using mapping software and running computer simulations, the team took what's known about Wuhan's earliest COVID cases, where they lived and worked, and placed everything into a great big data collage. And no matter how they looked at it, one suspect kept popping up in the middle.
0: What we realized was that at multiple levels, the data connected back to that market.
2: Alexander Kritz Christoph was on that team of data crunchers. He's a researcher at Johns Hopkins University who joined the effort last summer organizing clues and reanalyzing evidence his specialty is bioinformatics
0: the study of biological data and in particular the data that we get from sequencing genomes of in particular microbes bacteria viruses the tiny things that make us sick right
2: how would you define what the question the group attacked was how did you think of it
0: i think it was a team that was trying to understand this question as openly as possible right what what is the origins of sars-cov-2 how did it enter the human population What do we know of its proximal ancestors? In my mind and in my experiences that that was, we were always trying to answer that and every angle and facet of that.
2: And eventually you guys, not only did you zero in over the city of Wuhan to the block that the Huanan market is on, but then you had some other data that allowed you to sort of zoom in into the market about what was happening in the market. And, you know, if that's the crime scene, so to speak, what does it look like? What is, what is the evidence inside the market?
0: So as we zero in, we then see a little bit more detail here. The first part is that the market has two sides. It's separated by a large street, an east side and a west side. The vast majority of the cases, including all the cases before December 20th or so in the market, occurred on the west side. And so immediately then within the market, we see a geographic signal. There's all these people getting sick on the west side of the market, not on the east side. The West Side is particularly known for selling wildlife, domesticated
2: wildlife. Local authorities had swiftly closed the Huanan market after the outbreak was detected. And on the morning of January 1st, 2020, they'd sent in teams to test surfaces, animal carcasses, and to inspect the sewer system.
0: So these are what we call environmental samples. And they checked these samples for SARS-CoV-2, for genetic material. Then throughout the market, we can map which samples had a virus detected in them. And what we then see in that signal as well is the vast majority of the samples with virus detected in them were found, again, in that western part of the market.
2: The scientists still needed more clues. And without much help from China, they ended up doing some sleuthing of their own. They located photographs of wild animals on sale and ended up using a leaked document from an anti-China news site, the Epoch Times, run by a religious group. That document included the exact locations of where the swabs had been collected.
0: One aspect of the data here that actually really hadn't been reported to WHO and has only recently been reported is there were some stalls in that area, some vendors selling goods, right, that had several samples positive. In particular, there was an iron cage situated in a back room that tested positive. There was the inside of a freezer of one wildlife vendor that tested positive, as well as several carts meant to move animals. And we were really struck then by that finding in particular.
2: They also think they nailed another problem. Early on, two slightly different versions of the COVID-19 germ had been moving around Wuhan. What Alex helped show was that that could be explained too, if the virus jumped to humans in the market twice. So, zooming out, here's the argument the team is making. If you map where Wuhan's earliest COVID-19 cases lived, the market is dead center. And then, once you go inside the market, the tests light up on the side with the animals. Move even closer, and there are cages and carts with virus on them. The kind of cages that photographs show were once filled with live mammals. In the end, all their data paints a picture so vivid that you can practically feel a raccoon dog breathing on you or maybe a civet. No one can be sure about that, since the wild animals on sale disappeared before they could be tested. The reports say, you're, the two reports uh, that you're part of, you're part of both, say the evidence for an origin in the Huanan market is now, quote, dispositive. That was the word chosen, and it's an interesting word, because it's not a scientific word, really. It's more of a legal term, meaning basically case closed, right? So do you think it is? Is the case closed on where COVID-19 began?
0: Well, that, that's a matter of opinion. At what point you want to close the case, or at what point you want to keep investigating because you're not entirely sure yourself. I think we're getting to a point where I can be comfortable about what happened and not have to dedicate you know more too much of my time to to uh, further investigation. Right, but in science, the case is never a hundred percent closed, and we have we have stories about that with with other viruses as well. In science, it's really a matter of probabilities, uh, and I think the probability is very high, and I hope the evidence that we've found supports that conclusion. It's all about the probability that's high enough that you're comfortable moving forward with those conclusions.
2: Right. Is your personal, is Alex's own probability high enough that you're ready to set this question aside and move on to new questions?
0: Because, you know, I, I like to get sucked back in. When I, when I see uh, an argument for or against, I, I believe we have to interrogate it. We have to think deeply about it and what, what does it mean. If someone points out that maybe some of the data was biased or something, I think we need to look at that claim very carefully. So I'll always be continuing to, you know, look at those claims as much as my free time can afford it.
2: The reports were front page news in the U.S., but that was not the case in China. In fact, scientists there still aren't ready to blame the Huanan market. They continue to say that the market might be just a victim of an outbreak that started somewhere else, even outside of China.
0: Unfortunately, the political situation there is, is, I I have to say, it's it's dangerous for scientists in China to speak out about any conclusions of of where the virus came from. And I think it's a mistake to say like, oh, they would be biased one way or the other way. The official position of the Chinese government, right, is that the virus did not come from China, period. Anyway, and that makes it challenging, I think, for Chinese scientists to, to be able to communicate. It's a terrifying and tough political, you know, situation, I
2: think. You might be thinking the China's government would love to pin things on the market. That would be a stake right through the heart of the lab leak idea. And it would put China's laboratories in the clear. But the situation is just more complicated. Again. Here's Michael Standard.
1: There's a history of live wildlife trade in Wuhan. I mean, even though there's been a lot of denials about that, that's been going on for, for many, many years. The issue is that it's not really been discussed, especially here in China. So, you know, why is the government blocking discussion of, of that live wildlife trade is an important thing to try to figure out. Do you have a theory? I mean, there was so much of this going on, and and it makes the go- local government look pretty bad. So there's probably a lot of corruption going on. Three stall operators were were fined in, in earlier 2019 for live wildlife sales. So you know why wasn't it stopped fully? It, it seems pretty obvious that this was much more wide scale than uh, the authorities are making it out to look. So that's that's a huge problem.
2: Information out of China is now so scarce that Michael says scientists have sometimes emailed him to learn the latest.
1: In this whole COVID outbreak picture, this the, the lack of ability for China's journalists to do their job is, is you know, caused a huge gap in, in information. Because I mean, why should it be up to us, foreign journalists here, to do these things and track down obvious. People the question. I mean, the, whether you think the origin is from from wildlife or other uh, possibly a lab leak or, or other sources, it's you know natural to try to track down all these different sources and, and speak to them. So that's not been happening. You know, whether it's on the lab leak side, which is understandable, but it's more surprising that it's not been happening on the wildlife side. So that's that's a huge question
2: of why they don't want to talk about that. After the break, why China's government might not be so interested in finding the answer, no matter what it is. You can find links to our reporting in the show notes. And you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com slash subscribe.
1: Support for this podcast comes from MIT Technology Review's Pandemic Technology Project. It's funded in part by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation.
2: Compete with Compute. The technologies that power business are becoming smarter and faster than ever before. Join MIT Technology Review and experts from AMD, Google, Akamai, and more for our third annual Future Compute Conference, May 3rd and 4th, on the MIT campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Full details at futurecomputemit.com. This series began with a question, where do you think COVID-19 came from? And now we're asking the question again, but this time to people in China.
0: Personally, I think it's likely from the U.S. One, because of the lab. And two, the timing of the pandemic in Wuhan just lines up too perfectly with the timing of the World Military Games in 2019. I think a lot of people in China believed that it came from the U.S.,
3: especially initially. I choose to trust WHO or other third-party organizations' results, because their research looks to be more based on science, not on politics. A lot of reports say the COVID-19 originated from Wuhan City in China. I thought so at first, but The research, which proved that the virus came from Wuhan, was driven by the U.S. scientists. So, you know, like, science could be controlled by politics, you know.
0: I think the COVID virus passed to humans from animals. People eat any kind of animals, no matter whether they're living or dead. That's how humans got it. These days, people are really not afraid to eat anything. In
3: the media, they say it's from bats or from another animal at a wet market. This country says it came from that country. That country says it came from this country. I really don't know where it came from, but I really hope that wherever it came from, it goes back there as quickly as possible.
2: China's state media often repeats the story that the virus could have come from another country. It's all part of a geopolitical blame game. Shift the blame to somewhere else, anywhere else, and in the U.S., the effort to shift it back.
3: Why do you keep calling this the Chinese
0: virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? Because it of comes say from it's China. Racist. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. It comes from China. I you want to be accurate.
2: From the very beginning, COVID 19's true origin has been complicated by politics. Matthew Pottinger was deputy national security advisor to former President Donald Trump, and he went toe to toe with China's government over even what to call this disease. He was there in the White House when the pandemic first struck. And that's why I wanted to talk to him.
4: China has not done uh, itself any favors in how it's handled this, that's for sure. Hard for anybody to escape that
2: conclusion. He's an architect of American policy towards China, and now a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford.
4: I'm not trying to drive an agenda. I'll I'll try to just recount things as they happened and uh, let, let listeners sort of draw their conclusion.
2: Matt, let's get to this question of what it means for this virus to actually have an origin. You uh, are credited with introducing, or maybe promoting, the description of the virus as the "quote unquote" China virus. Tell us about the decision to to use that phrase, China virus. Was that was that the result of a a, a planning process? Well, Is it strategic I, communications? Is it no, political no, communications? No.
4: No, look, I never actually did recommend using the term China virus. I did say that calling it the Wuhan virus was in keeping with more than a century of traditional practice in the nomenclature for naming new pathogens based on where they were first discovered. You know, the Spanish flu didn't actually originate in Spain, but we called it the Spanish flu because that's where it was first identified, okay? Okay. We call Lyme disease Lyme disease, not because we want to make fun of people in Lyme, Connecticut, where, where I live close to there. I love Lyme, Connecticut. It's called Lyme disease because that's where they first found the spirochete that caused that syndrome. So calling it the Wuhan virus was appropriate. and, And I felt that it was actually important in light of the fact that we were learning that the Chinese government was beginning to drive a disinformation campaign from the top of their government that was designed to raise questions about whether this virus had actually originated in the United States, and so I understand there's an argument to be made that that moving forward, maybe we should name viruses a- after you know attributes of the virus as opposed to where it's discovered, so that you don't create stigma. I'm I'm open minded to those arguments. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I think maybe that's that's okay, but China had a strong interest in lobbying the world to call this something other than the Wuhan virus. They have a very powerful incentive to shift attention and blame away from the Chinese Communist Party because I think they got pretty nervous. I think they they were facing a pretty dire situation politically, a dicey situation. Once Li Wenliang, who was the Chinese doctor, the brave ophthalmologist who discovered that people were getting extremely sick in the hospital system that he was a part of, Dr. posted a warning on a group chat of medics in December. He said he'd seen seven cases that he thought resembled the SARS virus that led to a global epidemic in 2003. And he began warning other doctors that they were facing something quite dangerous, quite different from what was being characterized by health officials.
2: He was reprimanded by officials and forced to sign an apology.
4: And because he raised that alarm, he ended up getting hauled into a police station, ended up getting accused of rumor mongering, had to write a self-confession, and was was threatened with being jailed.
0: The 34-year-old ophthalmologist diagnosed Saturday with the Wuhan coronavirus, dying
4: less than a week later in the same hospital in which he worked. And on his deathbed spoke to a reporter and made a statement to the effect that it's dangerous when you don't have a plurality of voices in any society.
2: He sparked a national conversation about freedom of speech in China, and in death, he's become a national hero.
4: When he died, the people were so angry that I think the government was afraid that they might lose their grip. And that only deepened the instinct to continue in covering up the origins to make sure that no one would ever be able to access data that would allow us to definitively answer the question about where this thing originated.
2: One of the issues that that arises is that, you know, if there's a suspicion that it is a laboratory leak or a belief that it is from uh, nature, natural spillover, you know, as time progresses, you might have the expectation that more data will emerge to support what really happened. You know, the story is going to evolve and become more concrete. You know, journalists or, or maybe lay people might have hoped that the U.S. government, with all its diplomatic contacts, spies, eavesdropping, who knows what, would have an answer. The question is, why, with all the power of the U.S. government, has, has nobody found the smoking gun?
4: Smoking guns are funny things, by the way. I mean, we, most most judgments that people make in life, oftentimes even judgments to put someone in prison, judgments that end up leading presidents to go to war or to refrain from going to war are based on circumstantial evidence. So, so we shouldn't be dismissive of circumstantial evidence. But your question is, you know, why don't we then have the smoking gun? The simplest answer is that China does not want people to ever definitively answer the question of where this came from. Partly, it may be because they they know a lot more already about where it came from, or it may even be that they don't know, but they don't want to find out. Because in a system, a single-party communist dictatorship, truth is not the goal of government, finding out the truth of things. The goal of government is to protect the single party's monopoly on power. And digging into things is often a way to undermine a party's monopoly on power. When you're in charge of everything, it means that everything that happens in society, whether it happens on purpose or by accident, ends up getting pinned on, you know, the the party that's in charge. And I think that that's why the Chinese system is allergic to the idea of any
2: kind of inquiry into either one of these hypotheses. Last summer, the World Health Organization proposed phase two of the international scientific mission to uncover the true origin of COVID-19. But China's government wasn't happy with the plan.
3: Well, to be frank, I was taken aback when I learned about this. uh,
2: Zhang Yizhen is vice minister of China's National Health Commission. He's speaking through a translator at a press conference held last July.
3: It set as a priority the hypothesis of China violated the lab protocols. This reflects for common sense and arrogance against science.
2: Its top scientists were annoyed that the lab leak theory was still on the table. The new probe, they said, was a non-starter. China's scientific leaders say they are still collecting information. And the WHO remains hopeful. There's blood banks, for instance, whose stored samples could shed light on the earliest spread of COVID-19 in the city of Wuhan. But let's not pretend that the search for the origin is moving quickly. And that's become a problem in a different way. Because the fewer facts we can agree on, the more people's opinions get swayed by things other than science. Like stereotypes or even racism. I talked to Ho Feng Hung, a sociologist at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. His specialties include China's economy, U.S.-China relations, and Western perceptions of Asia.
3: Back in 2003, during the SARS epidemic, I I was actually teaching in the university in Hong Kong. So I was in Hong Kong, I was at the center of the epidemic. And also I have another research to look at the long-term Orientalist and racist perception of Chinese and Asian cultures in Western civilization since the 16th century to the 20th century. So I see a lot of this kind of cultural elements in the portrayal of the virus and portrayal of Asia or China as a source of uh, this dangerous disease in, in Western societies. Right. I'm glad you have brought up this issue because when people ask about the origin of the
2: virus, including whether it was potentially a lab leak, that hypothesis in particular is often described by some as a racist hypothesis. So, first of all, do, do you think that it is racist?
3: Actually, I think the lab leak theory that, of course, that we will lead a lot of serious uh, investigation into proving it or disproving it. But I think the lab leak hypothesis is the least racist account of the origin of this disease, the animal origins uh, of the virus, and a lot of portrayal of this kind of a uh, Origin of the disease has something to do with the eating habit of Chinese, of eating wild animal and bad soup and all this kind of talk. Uh, this is a lot scientific, but it is a stereotype, so it has a more risky potential of spreading this kind of racist lotions. But the lab leak actually is on the contrary. The lab leak theory is less racist because it is about the medical industrial comebacks. So it is the international medical risk management issues and it's a less a kind of a Chinese culture issue. So I feel it is very ironic that people start to portray the lab leak theory as a kind of a potentially racist theory.
2: So one response to the lab league theory is is that it's racist. But I think that you're right, that there's a second reason. And in fact, I've gotten an email from somebody who read one of my articles. I wrote a profile of a postdoc at the Broad Institute named Alina Chan, who she talks a lot about the lab league theory on Twitter. And this person wrote in and was very angry about the story. And essentially, his concern was that this story was going to contribute to China bashing and put us on a dangerous path of conflict. I have to wonder whether he has a point. Is keeping harmonious relationship with China important enough to set aside the question of where the virus comes from?
3: That is a very difficult question because it comes back to this kind of a, who is responsible for a worsening relation between U.S. and China. We know that the Chinese government has a lot of things that they are unhappy with. They don't want the world to talk about a lot of things. Also, the Xinjiang forced labor camp, the crackdown on the liberty in Hong Kong, and they don't want to talk about this. So the problem is the world would be definitely better if we have a better U.S.-China relation and and more harmonious, and I myself really much worry about this kind of worsening of uh, relation will eventually lead to a military conflict that will be quite deadly and, and, and disastrous for everybody. But the problem is whether we should improve the relation by not talking about a thing that the Chinese government doesn't want us to talk about.
2: Right. Okay. But does talking about it, does criticizing China, does asking for an investigation, does that help?
3: It is the tricky part that China is very adamant. The more you're asking for investigation, the Chinese government more that, that, that they will be reluctant to open up for investigation. The Chinese government's attitude and, and the practice of not cooperating and not allowing independent investigation, it just increase people's suspicion and belief in the Leibniz theory and then thinking that there's something that they want to hide. Sometimes people say, oh, the Chinese
2: government is is suppressing or or won't allow the investigation of a lab leak. But but I think there's evidence that they don't want discussion of the other origins either, including the most obvious one was that that it is, you know, perhaps actually from different animals being sold in a wet market.
3: I think they want to stop discussion about the fact that the virus originated from China altogether. That is for sure. They wanted to, to, to have discussion about the, the virus actually originate from Italy or the U.S., but there's just simply low evidence, circumstantial or otherwise, to point to that and support that yet. Yeah, so, so it is an impasse now.
2: It's a hugely consequential question because it has aspects of being a man-made disaster, whether it came from the lab or not. And if it's man-made, then, then there's responsibility.
3: Either way, there's a responsibility because if it is the wild animal sold in the market, it has something to do with the regulation of wild animal market. Because after SARS epidemics, uh, many Chinese scientists and, and the Chinese government already said that it is risky business, we need to regulate this wild animal market. If the wet market theory is true, that it has some kind of governmental responsibility, it is also why the Chinese government even don't want to talk about it either. But if it is a lab leak, it is more serious because it has something to do with the ethic of science and ethic of research that the medical community has been confronted with over the decades. And how to regulate and whether to forbid this kind of research is important discussion in terms of not only preventing the leaks, pandemics, but also the discussion about the ethical boundary of scientific research. And we need to have a serious discussion about, and and, and it is bigger than China. An issue bigger than China, That's the next
2: episode of Curious Coincidence, research on the world's most dangerous germs. Scientists are building new viruses using genetic engineering, but critics call it dangerous knowledge, unsafe at any speed. And this time, the story doesn't start in Wuhan. It starts right here in America. Curious Coincidence is a production of MIT Technology Review. It's produced as part of our pandemic technology project, which is supported by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. The show was created by me and Jennifer Strong. The producers are Anthony Green and Lindsay Moscato, with help from Emma Silicon's. The production manager is Luke Robert Mason. Our theme music was composed by Jacob Gorski, with original scoring and mixing by Garrett Lang. We're edited by Michael Riley, David Rotman, and Jennifer Strong. The executive producer of Curious Coincidence is Golda Arthur. I'm Antonio Regalado. Thanks for listening.